And hello, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Welcome to the show. The show today is all about viruses. We'll be talking about them with the science writer Carl Zimmer. And just in case you're wondering why viruses at this time of year, it's not cold or flu season after all, well, it is always virus season. They are all around us all the time. They're inside of us by the trillions, even when we're healthy. They're actually a part of us, thoroughly enmeshed in our very own DNA, and we too are a part of them. In fact, uh, it might make sense to just drop the us and them language when it comes to viruses. When you consider viruses closely enough, all sorts of boundaries start to break down between individual organisms, between different species, between life itself and non-life. Viruses punch holes in all those distinctions. And as far as their importance, well, Carl Zimmer was not exaggerating when he titled his new book A Planet of Viruses. Tiny and simple though they may be, just a smattering of molecules really, viruses play a blockbuster role in human history, in the evolution of life on Earth, in the environment, even global climate, as Carl Zimmer explains. So uh, let's let him get on with the explaining, starting with his description of what a virus is. A virus is usually just a very stripped-down living thing. Uh, Basically, it's just genes, typically in a protein shell, and that's it. And so uh, most viruses, as far as we can tell, aren't able to grow and divide like an ordinary cell. Uh, They don't have all the equipment. Instead, what they do is they invade other cells, and those cells end up making new copies of their genes and their proteins, which then assemble into new viruses. They're they're a little more than just a little kit for uh, replicating themselves or for telling a cell to replicate them. Yeah, and it doesn't take that much information to do that. Um, So just as computer viruses are usually pretty short programs, uh, biological viruses are incredibly tiny. Uh, so the flu virus, you know, something that can kill 50 million people in the 1918 outbreak, it's only got 10 genes. I mean, we have 20,000 protein-coding genes plus a bunch of other genes that encode other things. Uh, and yet something with just 10 genes can just knock us flat. You know, it's just like they're a little package of commands saying, copy me to whatever cell they happen to infect. Well, copy me, but also... You know, they have genes that encode for proteins that uh, are on their shell, which basically are like keys. So they they have keys they can use to unlock their host cell. Um, They need to grab onto certain receptors and slip in. This is not a simple thing. And so a virus that's adapted for one species cannot infect most other species. Let's take hepatitis C, which is a virus that um, infects our liver. Um, If you were to take that virus and try to infect, let's say, a pigeon, it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't be able to get in because it doesn't have the right key. On the other hand, sometimes uh, a bird flu does cross over into humans or a swine flu or something like that. That's right. So the viruses that we often need to be most worried about are the ones that take advantage of kind of a similar biology between humans and other animals. And so flu is actually a great example of this because um, the receptors that they use to get into our cells are a lot like the receptors they use to get into bird cells, which is actually kind of ironic because um, for us, the flu is a respiratory disease. Those viruses come into our airway and they infect the cells in the lining there. 
whereas bird flu is a virus that infects their intestines. It's like getting a stomach virus for them. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't think that the intestines of a bird and you know the airway of a human would have that much in common, but it's just enough that bird flu regularly uh, hops over the species barrier and becomes human flu. Mm. So the receptors in in the uh, gastrointestinal tract of birds are similar in some way to the receptors in the respiratory tract of humans? Close enough. I mean, it, when bird flus first cross over, they usually do a bad job of it. Um, so they can make somebody very sick, but they're not very good at then transmitting to another host. So there's a lot of uh, evolution that has to take place to turn a bird flu into a successful human flu. But all they need is that kind of foot in the door, as it were, if if virus had feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you said at the beginning that you think of, of viruses as, as the simplest life form, and yet they don't move around on their own. They don't reproduce on their own. They don't uh, metabolize. That is, they don't uh, eat things and turn it into energy and uh, do all the other things that we consider to be animate activities, yet you believe they're alive. Defend that position. <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, there are actually a number of scientists who are defending that vigorously uh, in scientific journals, so you don't have to take the word of this science writer. Um, I think that it's a a compelling argument because really ultimately I think that sometimes people come up with kind of arbitrary definitions of what it means to be alive. So you you can say, oh, to be alive you have to metabolize. Okay, but why? Why is that the key thing? If you want to define life uh, in terms of having genetic information, in terms of replicating, in terms of evolving, which is really important in terms of life, then certainly viruses fit all those criteria. And actually, what's been really fascinating just the past few years is to see the discovery of certain very bizarre viruses that are called giant viruses and so I said that flu viruses have only 10 genes. These are viruses that have a 1,000 genes. And when they invade a cell, they don't just sort of disperse and uh, their genes you know, start being uh, used to make new, cell- new viruses. They stay intact. They actually look like little cells within cells. And they take in uh, building blocks for viruses, and then they produce genes and proteins. Uh, they have genes... For building DNA, they have genes for building proteins. So, these particular viruses, which are definitely viruses, are really close to that borderline between things that can metabolize and things that can't. Mm. So, I mean, I think ultimately, I just think that it's kind of um, it's a divisive, destructive distinction to say that viruses are not alive. Life is not actually an either-or proposition. There's a spectrum of life, basically. And that's probably going to be important in terms of understanding how life evolved. I mean, when we go back and we look at the earliest stages of life, they were probably just sort of naked genes floating around in some kind of medium, maybe a warm pond or something like that. And they were interacting with each other a lot like viruses interact with host cells. And so we don't don't want to just draw a, a bright line in the history of life and say, well, before this, it was it had nothing to do with life. And after this, boom, it's alive. It, mm-hmm. That almost sounds like, um, it sounds almost biblical. Mm. And that's not what science is about. Well, there are even simpler infectious agents than, than viruses, aren't there? There's, a, there's viroids. These are little 
naked bits of RNA that act like viruses, but they don't even have the protein shell that viruses have. And then there's there's prions. Yeah. If you believe in prions, I guess more and more <laughs> scientists do, but those are just infectious proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly shaped proteins that cause other proteins to become oddly shaped, and this chain reaction results in which they propagate this particular structure and ends up destroying the brains of cows or even human beings in some cases through mad cow disease or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Would you call those living things? I, I would certainly say that they have um, certain living qualities. Um, you know, the tricky thing with prions is that, you know, they're not making new proteins. Right. You know, they're, they're just, just changing just existing proteins. Changing existing ones to match themselves. But then again, I mean, you can think of that structure of the protein as being information, and that information is being spread to more members of this group. So, you know, that's that's a lot of what life is involved with. Yeah, it seems to me that thinking about these tiny uh, life forms or quasi-life forms or parasitic uh, bits of uh, of genetic material or protein, I begin to see life as this web of information. And anything that sort of um, transmits information in this system, that uh, changes information in the system, is an agent. Yeah, and and actually something that's important to understand about viruses is that they're not actually just purely parasitic. Um, again, there's there's a big spectrum when it comes to viruses. So some do indeed just use their host, as I described before, just to make more copies of themselves. But um, there are also lots of viruses that use a different strategy. For example, a lot of them will insert their own genes into their host's genome. This happens a lot with viruses and bacteria, for example. Then they just sit there. And when the bacteria grow and divide and make new copies of their own DNA, they replicate the virus. So the virus almost becomes fused into their host. Um, and you know, the, every now and then they can still break out if uh, if there's stress. The, the virus DNA will make new viruses. But if things are cool, they'll just stay along for the ride. <laughs> and what's really amazing is that they can accidentally pick up genes from one host and insert them into another host, and it could be a different species. So actually, viruses are continually moving foreign DNA from one species to another. It's happening um, constantly, particularly in the soil and the oceans uh, in microbes. Uh, it's it's like one grand kind of genetic engineering experiment going on out there. So yeah, this this exchange of information um, is really important in understanding the role that viruses play in life. You're saying that there there are classes of viruses that can actually sort of splice themselves or get spliced into the genome of the host. So they become part of the genetic material of the organism they're inside. Even even inside us humans, there are there are such occasions by uh, what we call retroviruses, right? Yeah, there's a lot of viral DNA in the human genome. How much? Hold a second, I have to cough. <coughs> I hope that wasn't viral. Uh, I'm killing over. <laughs> no, uh, about 1.2% of our genome is made up of protein-coding genes. So these are the genes that encode keratin and collagen and all the other stuff that makes up our physical bodies. Mm-hmm. Eight or 9% of our DNA is made up of viruses. Uh, these are viruses that infected our ancestors, some of them just a couple hundred thousand years ago, some of them a hundred million years ago. 
our ancestors have been continually uh, attacked by certain kinds of viruses that have every now and then injected their DNA into the genome that gets passed down from one generation to the next. Eight percent of our genome, um, some of it in the what you call the protein-coding genes themselves and some in what's called the junk DNA or the non-protein-coding DNA? Well, uh, when a virus first inserts itself into a host genome, it, I guess you could call it junk in the sense that it's not it's not encoding proteins that are going to be useful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's all it's going to do is be encoding viral protein. In a lot of cases, very quickly these viruses mutate so that it's just just sitting there mm-hmm. in our genome. But sometimes these mutations will tweak these viral genes a little bit so that their proteins can be used for our own benefit. Give me some so, examples. So, so uh, a virus burrows its way into our genome, takes up residence there, and actually does something beneficial sooner or later. What's a good example of that? So I'll give you uh, perhaps the best documented example, and it involves pregnancy. So um, when a mammal embryo is developing in its mother's uterus, it builds a placenta, and that placenta has to attach to the uterus wall. And it does that with a special layer of cells. And the, the cells actually, um, the cell walls dissolve away just to f- form this, this kind of open kind of uh, matrix. And this is really important because this is where a lot of the nutrients from the mother come in to the placenta. This is really essential. I mean, if this layer doesn't form, the embryo dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that the protein that orchestrates that layer forming um, is a viral protein. And, and that viral protein is used by viruses to create connections between neighboring cells so the virus can go from one cell to the next. So you can see how evolution has taken that viral gene and, and used it for a new kind of function to, to open up the connections between cells in the placenta to create this layer that uh, nutrients can pass through. So if it wasn't for viral DNA, none of us would be born. And uh, scientists believe that this is some ancient virus, again, that um, snuck into our cells and and ended up facilitating this function in in mammals? Yeah, you can find this in all mammals that have a placenta. So uh, you don't find it in a kangaroo. Don't find it in marsupials, huh? Right. And so it presumably infected our mammal ancestors about 100 million years ago and may have been a crucial step in the evolution of the placenta. Wow, wow. On the other hand, some of these viruses that perform this trick of integrating themselves into our genes, that is retroviruses, some of some of the most evil viruses of all are retroviruses. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the uh, virus that bequeathed us this placenta gene, that could have been... Uh, a horrible epidemic as well. That could have been, you know, the HIV of the Mesozoic. I mean, that certainly could have been possible. And actually, um, you can see this happening right now. So, for example, um, in Australia, koalas are suffering very badly from an epidemic of these kinds of viruses, these retroviruses. And you can actually see how the the viruses are, are spreading from koala to koala 
And they can, when they infect cells, they can sometimes trigger kind of runaway growth so that these koalas may suffer from different kinds of cancer. But you can also see that, that in some cases the virus has integrated itself into koala genomes so that koalas are passing down the virus to their offspring. Um, and this has been going on probably for a century. This, uh, the, these koalas have been grappling with this. Um, you can go, there are some remote islands um, where there are koalas off the coast of Australia and they don't have this virus. Um, so this is a pretty recent outbreak. Um, and so the big question is, will this virus wipe the koalas out or will the koalas be able to survive and incorporate the virus into their own genome uh, and, you know, perhaps millions of years from now, use parts of it for their own benefit. We don't know. Wow. And you said, you mentioned HIV. That's a retrovirus. Right. HIV is a retrovirus. And so what it does is it will infect certain kinds of white blood cells, cells of the immune system. And it basically uh, will uh, insert its own DNA into the DNA of those white blood cells and then those white blood cells will typically churn out uh, new HIV viruses. Now, it, you know, we don't know if it could be possible for HIV to infect an egg, for example. We just don't know. Um, and, you know, maybe it's conceivable that if it did, that, you know, someone could be born with, with HIV in every cell of his body. Uh, obviously, no one's ever seen that happen. But, you know, never say never. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We should probably clarify that a, a retrovirus can infect certain cells and either hurt you or not hurt you, depending on what then happens. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to be inherited. Uh, it's only if they get into what are called the germ cells, that is the sperm cells or egg cells, depending on whether you're male or female, and integrate into those genes that it will be necessarily passed down to the next generation and the next and the next. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, like if a man is HIV positive, um, it, it's it, he, he's not his child will not be born with HIV integrated into every cell right. of that child's body. Right. Right. Now, it, it it is true that, you know, parents can transmit uh, mothers can transmit HIV to their uh, babies. But this can be done. You know, this isn't this is infection. Through this is through the blood, cells. blood or milk. Yeah. Or something like but that. that's just yeah. an infection that's attacking white blood cells. And that's, that's a serious problem. And, you know, there's a it's a major source of child mortality. But that's separate from what we've been talking about with viruses actually becoming part of their host genome. Now, viruses as transmitters of information, um, that is genetic information, from species to species, sort of messing up what I think traditionally was considered to be a fairly neat tree of life. I mean, we think of these branches forking and never coming together again. But if you were to really draw the tree of life, you'd have all these little bridges connecting various branches uh, representing viruses carrying genes or DNA from one species to another. This is is radical. Species that never have sex, that never interbreed, are exchanging genetic information via viruses. Yeah, this this is a really important shift in the way that um, scientists look at the evolution of life. I mean, you know, Charles Darwin created this this magnificent metaphor of the tree of life, and certainly, uh, in a lot of ways, um, the molecular age has confirmed 
that that life has branched like a tree. I mean, if we look at our closest relatives, they are chimpanzees, they are gorillas, and our ancestry is like branches on a tree. Um, that being said, um, viruses have this way of hopping around and taking genes from one host and popping them into another. And these could be branches that have been separated by millions or billions of years. And this is not uh, just um, kind of academic interest to evolutionary biologists who like to study what happened three billion years ago. This is happening right now, and it's actually of crucial medical importance. Um, so, for example, there's been this recent outbreak of uh, E. coli in Europe. Uh, <clears throat> there's this strain of E. coli, this very dangerous strain of E. coli that seems to be carried on some kind of food, but they're not sure what. And it is causing um, bloody diarrhea. It's causing organ failure. Uh, it's a really serious. What's really strange about this is that uh, this particular strain of E. coli uh, has never been documented to make people sick before. But something happened to turn this strain of E. coli into a really uh, nasty character. And what happened it appears, is that viruses carry genes from other species of bacteria into this E. coli strain. They inserted them in there, and now all of a sudden this E. coli can stick to uh, a person's intestinal cells and cause those cells to dump out all their contents. Toxins get in, they cross into the bloodstream and wreak all sorts of havoc. And so that is part of what we've just been talking about, the, the, the evolutionary web of life. It's happening right now, and it is, it's killing people. On the other hand, I mean, you've already given one instance in which viruses conferred a, a good trait on their host. So they're, they're kind of value neutral, right? I mean, they just pick up things uh, at random, and sometimes those things do nothing. Sometimes they do bad things. Sometimes they do good things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, people will sometimes say to me, "Are viruses good or bad?" And I want to say, "Well, are people good or bad?" <laughs> I mean, it's it. The question doesn't really make sense because there's so much complexity. In fact, you list a number of things they do that are, at least for us humans, indisputably good, right? I mean, not just our placentas, which are necessary to uh, our development, but um, for one thing, they keep a lot of bacteria under control. They don't just attack us; they attack our enemies. That's right. Um, the The first viruses that scientists identified in the late 1800s were viruses that attacked animals and humans and plants. Um, but then in the early 1900s, um, a French-Canadian doctor named Felix Durrell, um, he discovered that there were actually viruses attacking the bacteria that were causing dysentery in World War I soldiers. So this was the first time that anyone discovered a virus that attacked bacteria. He called it a bacteriophage, which means the eater of bacteria. And he said, hey, we've got these viruses that are, are targeting the bacteria that we want to kill. So let's use them. Um, this was before antibiotics had been invented. So it seemed like a great um, opportunity to, to harness nature. Uh, and he actually developed um, bacteriophage therapy. It was very successful until the advent of antibiotics, and then people kind of just forgot about phage therapy. Except in the Soviet Union. That's right. That's right. So in the West, um, you know, people sort of set aside 
viruses. I, it's it's interest. It's interesting sociology to see why that happened. They may have been perhaps a little uncomfortable, like making viruses part of the uh, the toolkit that doctors would use. And you know, chemicals are you know they're more reliable, more easily manufactured. Um, there's less uncertainty with them, I guess. But Felix Durrell traveled to many parts of the world and he wanted to spread the gospel, as it were, of phage therapy. And one of the places he went to was the Soviet Union. And so he actually helped set up an institute there. He you know, eventually uh, lost contact with them because Stalin was cracking down on, on leading scientists. But um, phage therapy took hold in the Soviet Union. During World War II, um, you know, the Soviet soldiers at the front who were wounded, they would be treated with phage therapy. They would have these pads that would be put on their wounds, and the viruses would attack the bacteria in those wounds so that they wouldn't get infected. And Soviet scientists actually did a lot of research showing that phages were indeed effective. Uh, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, some of that knowledge has trickled out to the rest of the world. And so now there are actually people who are trying to revive phage therapy, um, and they're taking advantage of all the progress that's been made with molecular biology. So now, you know, you can take a, a phage virus and engineer it uh, to make it even more effective mm -hmm. at fighting an infection. Mm. It offers one obvious advantage. I mean, that is that antibiotics, as we know, are... Um Losing their potency in many cases. We got a lot of bacteria out there that are now antibiotic resistant. Uh, these viruses, these phages that attack bacteria, could be a second line of attack. On the other hand, it sounds kind of scary to be playing with viruses, which, as we know, can mutate really rapidly and do things two weeks from now that they didn't used to do. Some of those things being, you know, cause epidemics and illness. Well, that, it is true that viruses evolve very fast. But, um, we don't have to worry about that in terms of making us sick, at least, you know, in terms of these these phages attacking us directly, because they have been adapted for billions of years to attacking bacteria. And bacterial cells are, are fundamentally different than our own. That's why we can take antibiotics and not die. We take antibiotics mm -hmm. because they are chemicals that attack bacteria exclusively. And they leave our cells alone. So the same principle go actually goes to phage therapy. You use these phages. They, they just cannot get into our cells. They don't have the, what it takes. So whereas a, uh, a virus, as we know, could cross over from a chimpanzee to a human being in the case of HIV or from birds and pigs to human beings in the case of influenza, we really shouldn't worry too much about crossover from bacteria to us. Right. And actually, uh, when... A person is healthy. They are actually home to trillions of phages. So there have been censuses taken of how many phages there are in the healthy human body. And the estimate is about 4 trillion phages occupy a person's body. They come in over a thousand different species. So we, each of us is swarming with phages in our guts, on our skin, in our mouths, in our nose, in our lungs. They're everywhere. And not only that, but we're eating phages every day. If you have yogurt, you're eating phages. If you have pickles, phages. There's phages in lots of our food. So um, 
it's a little silly, I think, to say to someone, "Oh, oh, don't don't put that phage on that on that wound. It's it's a virus, and something bad might happen." I think that's just a, a that comes from a, a, an unfamiliarity with with phages and how they interact with us. We are big beakers of phages. So, Carl, you are on record now as being really down with uh, this viral therapy, phage therapy. Uh, for bacterial infections. Um, that's Carl Zimmer, folks, uh, science writer, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, And Carl's latest book is A Planet of Viruses. That's what we're talking about today. So, so Carl, is that an endorsement, like I put it? Well, <laughs> I would say I would say that we shouldn't be scared of phage therapy. No, I mean, you bring it, raise an important point. I mean, there's been a big debate about whether phage therapy is dangerous or not and there really has been and and it's an important debate but it's been settled because I, because scientists have been able to document um just how pervasive phages are in our bodies in our healthy bodies and um they've really been able to shoot down a lot of the objections there are important issues to deal with with phage therapy. I mean, for one thing, is it really going to be effective? Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I uh, am aware of, there haven't been large-scale, randomized, you know, double-blind trials for phages. There, there were a few studies that were kind of approaching that in the Soviet Union, but um, nothing like that in the West. And so, um, so the, the, they haven't really um, gone through that process yet. So they might well turn out not to be as effective as as has been uh, hoped, but we just don't know. We have a lot of reason to think that they could be very promising. The problem that phage researchers are having is that you know the FDA doesn't really know how to deal with this. Mm. Uh, the FDA is not crazy about um, giving approval to viruses being put into people. Uh, they they uh, they're very reluctant, and so. Um, I've talked to uh, phage researchers. Um, for example, there's a, a guy named Tim Liu at MIT who has done great work in engineering phages, and he he can make phages that can can uh, kill off antibiotic uh, resistant uh, bacteria that form these very tough uh, biofilms. It's really amazing stuff. He can do that, you know, in the lab, but he hasn't done that in in humans. Uh, and he's actually decided not to take the medical path for now. Wow. He's not developing this into a drug for now. What he's doing is actually quite uh, interesting and something I never would have predicted. Um, it turns out that um, the air conditioning and heating systems in buildings, the HVAC, um, tends to build up bacteria. It's it's a great place for bacteria to, to grow. And they form these biofilms that get to be quite thick and they really screw up uh, the transfer of heat across these systems. So they become very inefficient. So it costs more and more money to run your HVAC to keep your building warm or cold. So what he's doing is developing viruses that he's going to unleash inside of these ducts. And they're going to go in and they're going to kill off these biofilms and they're going to save these uh, building owners a lot of money. That's the plan. Wow. So... Uh, he can't cure humans yet, but he might be curing buildings. The promise of this phage therapy, you know, would be that it, it might replace antibiotics, which, you know, we're, we're losing the war against bacteria in the antibiotic department, I think it's safe to say, with multi-drug resistant strains and fewer and fewer 
new antibiotics being yeah. discovered. Uh, yeah, the antibi- the antibiotic pipeline is is seriously broken. Yeah, there aren't very many antibiotics uh, coming out of that pipeline that that work in the same way that say penicillin right. or or Cipro have worked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those traditional antibiotics are just failing because bacteria are getting to be so resistant. On the other hand, and, Carl, is there a chance that um, using phage therapy, we develop resistant strains um, in that dimension as well? That is, bac- sure. bacilli that uh, become resistant to certain phages. Well, <laughs> yes, but, you know, but think about it. Phages... Um, have been attacking bacteria for billions of years. Mm-hmm. And those bacteria have been evolving resistance for billions of years. Mm-hmm. And yet those phages can still infect them. What that means is that those phages have been evolving for billions of years. The thing with phages is that you know you can change them. You can tweak uh, their proteins so that they can do a better job of grabbing onto these bacteria and gaining access, gaining entry. So... Um, it's kind of like a, an evolvable antibiotic. Right, right. Uh, and, so, I mean, you can, and you could even just run these evolution experiments in your lab and produce uh, new strains of phages that you could then use um, on, on bacteria that have become resistant to um, the old phages. And this doesn't take much time at all. Because, right. you know, if, if you drop a phage into a uh, bacterial colony, come back 24 hours you've got a billion new phages and there's a lot a lot of variation in them and some of them will be already starting to adapt to their host um we've been talking about one thing that viruses do for us which is to control some forms of bacteria and you say we are we are host to um you said trillions of these bacteriophages these viruses that prey on bacteria i assume that if not for them if not for the viruses some of those bacteria probably would um overrun us um, so there's one good thing that viruses can do for us. You, you list a few others in your book. Uh, in the oceans, you say, viruses are helping to produce much of the oxygen on our planet and at the same time uh, maybe control some of the carbon dioxide that otherwise would warm the Earth. That's right. Um, the, the whole world of ocean viruses is one that uh, scientists have only stumbled across in, say, the past 20 years. And there was a time when scientists thought that the oceans were basically sterile in terms of viruses. There might be a few floating around, but they just didn't think that seawater was a great place for viruses to survive. And yet, uh, when scientists actually then took a look and and were careful about their surveys, they discovered, actually, that the oceans are swarming with viruses. And so if you scoop up a spoonful of seawater, it might have a billion viruses in it. And so if you uh, extend that across the whole ocean, it's something like 10 to the 30th power viruses, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. I mean, yeah, that's a, what your book says. It says 10 to the 30th, which I, I had mm-hmm. to look this up. That's a non-illion. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There are more viruses in the ocean than there are stars in the universe. Uh, and that's a lot of viruses, and they are not attacking humans. So that doesn't mean that you should not go for a swim in the ocean. Um, the viruses are not going to be attacking you. They're too busy attacking all those bacteria. And when they attack the bacteria, a lot of them will actually rip open their host when the new viruses spill out, and they dump all of that carbon out of them. 
And so that has an effect on how much carbon the oceans can soak up from the atmosphere. And that has an effect on the climate because the carbon dioxide in the ocean, in the atmosphere, um, you know, traps heat. So, you know, viruses are, are helping to control the Earth's thermostat. Well, uh, when those cells are ripped open as a result of the virus infection, um, all that carbon dioxide isn't released into the atmosphere. You say it's a uh, it descends in the form of all this debris that's constantly raining down in the oceans called marine snow and gets sort of locked up in the oceans for a good long time and therefore is not contributing during that period to, to global warming. So that's a good thing. Well, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, uh, some of the carbon may be coming out and actually helping to fertilize um, bacteria uh, in the upper layers of the ocean. So there seem to be several different things happening at once to all the carbon that the viruses are unlocking. How does it all add up? Does it all add up to sort of a net warming or a net cooling? Uh, scientists just don't know yet because um, it's only recently that they've really appreciated just how tremendous a force viruses are in the environment. Literally, they kill half of all the bacteria in the ocean every single day. So, you know, they've got to be doing something, but we just don't know what yet because it's such a complex process to to, to model. Um, but, uh, you know, clearly they're having a huge effect, not just on um, the climate, but on the whole ocean ecosystem because that carbon is, is the basis of the food chain. And, and along with killing all those bacteria, they're spreading genes around in the oceans. Like maybe like nowhere else you say... They transfer a trillion, trillion genes. I mean, this is a, an estimate, probably a wild-ass guess, but among organisms in the ocean every year. Um, so a lot of genetic exchange going on there. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just mixing it up in there all the time. Um, and uh, one of the things that they do, actually, is move genes for photosynthesis around. Um, and this is actually a really amazing phenomenon. There are some viruses that carry with them uh, a lot of the genes that are necessary for harnessing the energy of the sun. And they will infect bacteria. And instead of killing them, they just insert themselves into their host genome. And they give the bacteria the, the equipment they need to become photosynthesizers. So essentially, it's kind of like um, they come into a, a solar power plant and start switching on the equipment. Um, so suddenly these bacteria can now photosynthesize. And so they take in carbon dioxide and they give off oxygen. So and that's how viruses it, help produce all that oxygen you mentioned, uh, that we mentioned yeah. earlier. Scientists estimate that about 10% of all the oxygen that's produced in the oceans it comes from these viruses. So, you know, uh, from every in every breath you take, you're breathing in some oxygen that came from viruses. Um, your book is full of amazing facts like that. Which facts most wowed you when you researched this? One thing that really uh, amazed me was um, just how much our bodies are um, host to viruses. And we mentioned the, the phages, but actually there are um, other viruses that, that actually are human viruses that you can find on most people. So, for example, papillomaviruses. These are the cause of uh, cervical cancer, for example, uh, and they can also cause warts and hideous uh, growths if, if your immune system can't handle the viruses. They're on all of us. 
I mean, they sit on our eyebrows even, our eyelashes. And yet our, our bodies normally are in a kind of a somewhat happy harmony with them. We don't get sick because the viruses don't um, grow out of control. They just speed up the growth of uh, those cells. But, you know, we cast off skin cells all the time. So, you know, those infected cells don't cause us any trouble. We just get rid of them. It's only when things get a bit off. So, for example, um, you know, women can uh, acquire cervical cancer when they get the virus through sexual intercourse, and then it may start growing very quickly. It causes the host cells to grow really fast, and then that leads to cancer. Um, yeah, we should and, jump in and say that whereas some viruses make us sick by actually destroying cells like influenza, flu, gets into our respiratory tract and actually ruptures the cells that line our respiratory tract, right? When these viruses multiply inside the cell, they eventually break it open and spread that way, and that destroys the cell. In the case of HPV, it actually causes the cells to just multiply more. It doesn't kill the cells at all. That's right. Yes, and it's pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, uh, the division of cells in our body is a very complicated process. It takes hundreds of genes um, producing proteins that are doing a very complex dance. Somehow this virus gets in there and basically just sort of steps in and just tweaks things a bit to speed up the growth of these cells, usually without causing it to run away into cancer. So it's, it's a quite an amazing performance that they put on. Um, yeah, we talked about how viruses are very simple compared to, you know, larger life forms. In fact, they're, they're much smaller in most cases, aside from the, the really exceptional huge viruses you mentioned earlier on. They're much smaller than even bacteria and much simpler. But they seem to have just an elegantly selected little package of materials inside of them. As small as they are, they have just the right stuff, not only to get themselves replicated, but in some cases to turn off those mechanisms inside the host cells that would interfere with that replication. Sometimes they include even a few enzymes that will help them. Just the right stuff to propagate themselves. When you When you think about that, that precision, you know, just the perfect recipe inside of this little package that we call a virus. How did that come about? How does that come about? One reason that viruses can become so wonderfully adapted is that they mutate very fast. They mutate maybe 100,000 times faster than we do. And so they're basically sampling lots of different possible uh, genetic recipes and the ones that don't work lead to viruses that just die off. But the few that do work a little better than what came before, they replicate faster and they take over a population really quickly. And so, you know, natural selection can um, really uh, move very fast in viruses. Not only that, but um, they're able to mix together different kinds of genes with other viruses or with genes from their hosts. So there's just a fantastic amount of experimentation that can go on in the viral world. And uh, and because they are um, producing, like I said, millions of new viruses a day, um, sometimes billions, um, they can hit on new solutions uh, very quickly. That being said, you know, a lot of their um, quote-unquote attempts 
to uh, come up with new adaptations uh, are just total failures. Um, for example, there are lots of viruses that jump from other species to our own, but then they just don't really get to last very long. They get snuffed out. Um, so like in 2002, for example, there was an art outbreak of the virus SARS. I wanted to ask you about SARS. Whatever happened to it? This is a severe acute respiratory syndrome, I think was the name of it. Uh, sprang up in 2002, 2003, killed a bunch of people, had a pretty high mortality rate, had a lot of people afraid. It was mostly in Asia, but then it spread to other parts of the world. And then it just petered out. What happened? Well, it just wasn't that great of a virus, for one thing, <laughs> <laughs> as human viruses go. So, so you know, it, it it didn't do a great job of getting from one person to another. And so what that meant was that as soon as scientists could uh, figure out what they were dealing with, they could identify the virus and they could recognize symptoms that the virus caused, they could start putting into effect public health measures and break the transmission. And so uh, they, they, what they did was they kept the virus from going from one person to the next. And so people who were infected, they either died and the viruses died with them, or they got over it and their immune system wiped out the viruses in their own body, but they hadn't spread it to anyone else. So the virus was uh, killed off that way, but also uh, the scientists had figured out where the virus was coming from, and it originated in bats, and then it spread into some of the animals that were being sold in Chinese markets. Uh, there's a cat-like animal called a palm civet that was a host for this uh, SARS virus. So they said, all right, get those palm civets out of these markets. Um, they, they clamped down a lot, and it worked. It was, it's a really, I think, quite an amazing thing. I mean, this could have become uh, a regular part of our lives in the way that West Nile virus is now a regular part of our lives in the United States. There was no West Nile virus 15 years ago. Now it's everywhere. Um, and it's never going away. SARS, I think, could have been that way if if scientists hadn't uh, been so proactive about it. Well, so there's an example of a virus that couldn't make it in. Okay, so let's take an example of a virus that was very successful at spreading itself, and yet also sort of uh, ran its course and, and disappeared. The Spanish flu of 1918 um, killed millions of people worldwide um, in this horrific epidemic, but Eventually, it stopped. And in fact, I um, I dug up the newspaper records of San Jose, California, from that period, uh, and looked at the reports on the the flu. And people suddenly, you started seeing reports of deaths, and then peaking at you know fifty deaths a day or something like that. And then mysteriously, at, at least to me, um, they just trickled out. And it wasn't through any preventive measures. It wasn't through any obviously no vaccine or anything like that. It just came and went. What happened? Well, uh, there are a lot of scientists who would like to know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a sense, it didn't leave. Um, a, a lot of those genes and those viruses are still circulating in some flu strains today. Uh, the, the 1918 flu gave rise to a lot of the flu viruses we deal with now. But, you know, the, a huge number of people were exposed to that virus. And so about 50 million people died, but there were probably billions of people who were exposed to it. And, um, you know, the most vulnerable people uh, died off, and, and people who were uh, 
were resistant, they developed antibodies to it. And so the, the, the virus went from being a pandemic to being more of a, a seasonal flu. Um, and, you know, that seems to be part of what happened, but there are just a ton of mysterious questions about that flu. Uh, it may, there may have been other reasons for its disappearance that we just don't understand. But we also don't really know why it was so bad compared to other strains. Um, there have been these pandemics since then, um, and but instead of killing, say, 50 million people, they kill, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people or mm-hmm. tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. That's bad. Nobody wants that. But it's it's nowhere near as bad as the 1918 flu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've got a, a question out of left field for you, Carl. Mm-hmm. I thought of a few that you probably have never <laughs> been asked before. Just try me. I'll try you. Um, <laughs> we get colds and flus and new varieties all the time coming through, as well as new viruses that we didn't even know about before. The SARS virus, HIV, appears at some point you know, in our history. Um, but our dogs and our cats, I mean, I, I, as a pet owner, I mean, I, I know that I get them the same been giving them the same vaccinations that people have been giving them for decades, you know, with a few exceptions. Rarely anything new. There are no epidemics that sweep through, you know, even as mild as colds sweeping through their population. Why is that? Do you have any idea? There probably are things that are sweeping through, but we're just not really keyed into it because our dogs aren't coming to us and saying, I've got (laughs) such a headache, you know. Exactly, yeah. I mean, so, for example, in kennels, actually, there are a lot of uh, viruses that can cause a lot of trouble there. And, um, you know, kennel uh, operators know about these things. And uh, it, it's a problem. You can understand why it could be a problem in kennels because um, you've got lots of dogs coming in from lots of different places, bringing in lots of viruses, and then living in very close quarters. And the viruses can float around and infect others, other dogs and uh, get them sick too, and they can evolve and so on. Uh and so, actually, uh, there's been a lot of interesting research going on by veterinary scientists trying to figure out what are these viruses. Um, I actually recently just wrote about an amazing discovery that scientists made in looking at these kennel outbreaks. You know, a lot of times the virus that's causing these outbreaks, they're, they're sort of pneumonia-like diseases a lot of the time. And, you know, the scientists will say, ah, okay, well, this is such and such a virus, or this is another virus, and blah, blah, blah. But um, every now and then, you get these outbreaks where they can't match it to a known virus. And so they have to go to experts who know how to fish out the DNA uh, or the RNA of viruses that have never been characterized before. Uh, So some scientists at Columbia University actually just recently identified a new virus that, that makes dogs sick in kennels with this kind of pneumonia-type disease in their airways. Uh, And what's really astonishing is it's very, very similar to hepatitis C in humans. Oh, that bad? Well, here's the thing. Hepatitis C in humans attacks the liver. Yeah. And it causes liver failure. It's it's the leading cause for liver transplants. Um, And about 200 million people in the the world suffer from it. It's a serious uh, epidemic worldwide. It's a a terrible problem. This dog version of hepatitis C doesn't seem to harm their liver. It It barely even gets into the liver. It's mainly infecting their airways. So it's possible that, say, 500 years ago, this dog pneumonia 
hopped over the species barrier and became a human liver disease. Wow. Wow. So hep C, you're saying hepatitis C may have come from the dogs. Yep. But I, wa- I do want to say that doesn't mean that your dog is going to give you hepatitis C. That doesn't have. That's not how viruses work. So you know, no one needs to to look at Fido with fear in their eye. It's that's not an issue. Well, in fact, unlike pigs, birds, you know, fowl of various kinds, uh, our dogs and our cats don't seem to be incubating a lot of infectious agents that do attack us. I mean, it's a good thing for all of us and for them too. Um, you know, but it, 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 it may be completely wrong. But my impression that they don't get sick as often as we do, nor do they seem to be subject to these new infections as often as human beings, I did have my own answer, which is that they don't travel like we do. Um, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's one of the big things that, that we have done, especially in modern times, that has resulted in, in mass contagion. Well, you know, there is one um, virus that um, actually has m- made a lot of inroads um, in cats, uh, which is uh, causes feline leukemia. Right, right. It's a, actually a relative of HIV, and um, it's actually been a big problem for cat owners. Uh, it, it basically essentially gives a cat AIDS, and, and that uh, has um, really only in the past uh, couple of decades has that been a, a problem. But you're right. On, on the whole, um, pets are not um, sort of a, a breeding ground for viruses, particularly viruses we need to be worried about because – most of us have like you know one dog or a couple cats. Mm-hmm. I mean that's not the kind of a, a condition that really breeds viruses. A pig farm, on the other hand, an industrial scale pig farm, or or a, a, a chicken farm in in uh, southern China. Now there's a great place to breed new viruses. So so you mentioned that feline leukemia is HIV like. Um, your book does talk about scientists' efforts to trace. Uh, the origins of HIV, you know, initially when it was discovered, they thought it was brand new, and then they found some evidence of patients having had it back into the 1970s. Um, you list evidence that, that uh, for, for, for human infections going back to the 1930s. Uh, and then, of course, they've confirmed initial suspicions or early suspicions that it may have crossed over from, from various primates. Want to tell that story? Sure. So it's been about 30 years since um, the first diagnoses of um, the disease caused by HIV cropped up, AIDS. Um, Basically what was happening was the immune systems of uh, gay men were breaking down in in the Los Angeles area. Uh, And it took a couple of years for scientists to discover the virus that was causing this disorder, which is human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. Um, If you uh, look at uh, the viruses that infect animals, um, you'll find several uh, viruses that infect primates that are extremely similar to HIV. Uh, And you can actually draw an evolutionary tree which shows you that the most common forms of HIV evolved from chimpanzee viruses. They probably hopped over several times, uh, probably in Cameroon, um, because the chimpanzees there have the most human-like viruses. Uh, and this, if you look at the number of mutations in uh, human uh, viruses and the chimpanzee viruses, it's kind of like a clock, and you can count up the mutations and estimate when the human viruses first originated. And it looks to be the early 1900s. Um, so, you know, the, the oldest actual physical traces of HIV 
go back to about 1960, but um, we can be pretty confident that HIV was circulating around in Africa at very low levels uh, long before that. Um, maybe I got it wrong when I said 1930s, but I thought there was some mention in your book of um, evidence of, of human infection going back to like 1933. That's the estimate based on the molecular climate. I see. Based on the rate at which um, these viruses uh, accumulate mutations, they can sort of look at uh, this vast database of um, various virus strains they've collected and say, well, look, um, you know, it looks like it's changed at this rate, and it looks like we can sort of follow the trail back uh, at least mm -hmm. to the 1930s. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And the oldest physical evidence of HIV are from actually uh, tissue samples that are uh, kept in hospitals in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo and those go back to about 1959. Hmm. Uh, there might be older ones yet to be discovered, but um, you know th it's it's pretty hard to fish viruses out of the human tissues that old. Um, so that's the story of HIV uh, so far. What about viruses in general? What do we know about their origins and how long they've been around on Earth? We don't have a, a fossil record of viruses, obviously. Um, viruses don't leave fossils, but um, we can get a lot of uh, indirect clues. Uh, so, for example, the, a lot of the genes that we find in viruses are very weird compared to the genes found in animals or plants or even bacteria. And so if you try to draw an evolutionary tree for those genes, um, you find that the virus genes are on a very, very deep branch. So that suggests that viruses were around very early on. They're a very old history. And, you know, really, it kind of stands to reason that you'd get viruses pretty early because, I mean, there's so many viruses today and they and they evolve so fast to take advantage of their hosts that... It seems that as soon as you had a, a system of living things, you'd start to have viruses almost immediately. Um, and you didn't even need cells to have viruses. You could just have groups of genes that would exploit other groups of genes uh, and basically hijack them. It's a great way of making a living. Uh, and so I, I would argue that there were viruses pretty much from the beginning. It was inevitable that we'd have them. I mean, given the uh, the information system that that's at the heart of life. Yeah, I think one really striking uh, illustration of how inevitable viruses are is uh, when scientists design artificial life programs. It's very easy for virus-like things to pop up in them. It just they 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 <laughs> these crop are up. These are computer simulations uh, of, yeah. of lifelike uh, reproductive uh, processes. Yeah. Right. These these are sort of digital organisms that have the capacity to evolve, and you find that some of them will just basically turn into virus-like programs, computer viruses. Uh -huh. It just happens. Well, Carl, may um, may all your books go viral and uh, take care of that cough. Okay. Thanks a lot. Carl Zimmer. His latest book is A Planet of Viruses. And uh, I'd like to uh, correct something I said earlier in the interview when we were talking about those old newspaper reports of the Spanish flu outbreak in San Jose in 1918. As I said in the interview, I thought I remembered reports of about 50 deaths a day at the peak of the pandemic. But on further reflection, I now think it was more like 10 deaths and 50 or so new cases per day which is still a pretty big number considering the smaller population in the Santa Clara Valley back in those days. 
This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.